Welcome to Healthcare Beans. I'm your host, James Haven. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Yazan Abdullah, an internist who specializes in hormone replacement therapy and is also the founder of Newport Health and Vitality, which is based in Newport Beach, California. Our conversation spans testosterone use and the stigma associated with that, pursuing vitality in addition to longevity for health-conscious Americans, obesity and its connection to observed low testosterone levels in American men, the pros and cons of managed care, the rise of psychedelics as a treatment for mental health disorders, and the potential for Bitcoin payments for healthcare services. We hope you enjoy the show. Dr. Yazan Abdullah, welcome. Yes. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. I uh, went to residency here in uh, California, and then uh, I did that in internal medicine. So I'm an internist by training. Uh, initially, I was uh, serving the uh, uh, HIV uh, community, and uh, low testosterone is very common uh, among HIV positive men. And so throughout the years, that's how I kind of picked up the um, uh, the management uh, of low testosterone uh, among men. And with time, I developed a passion for it. So right now, this is my uh, main focus. Uh, we generally uh, treat, uh, treat men for uh, low testosterone or suboptimal testosterone. Uh, and I just recently started also treating women. I do uh, postmenopausal and perimenopausal hormone replacement therapy for women as well. That in a nutshell, that is Newport Health and Vitality? That's right. Um, the name comes from uh, uh, the fact that uh, Newport has a certain vibe to it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been, but there's a vibe here. Uh, the vibe is generally positive, sunny, and uh, uh, you know, feel-good kind of vibe. Um, the word health comes from the fact that um, I do not consider what I do as uh, just for vanity purposes, but also for longevity and uh, cardiovascular and metabolic health. And so I like to put the word health in there. Uh, vitality refers to the fact that uh, you feel alive and you feel young and uh, you feel uh, that you have plenty of energy to do the things that you like. That sounds great. And, and I was interested when I came across your profile, um, mostly from seeing your posts on LinkedIn, which are quite lively, by the way. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're not scared. That's good. I'm, no, no. <laughs> I'm so glad to get you on here because I'm I'm largely on the other side of that of that controversy, but we can certainly get into it. Um, yeah, your focus on vitality because I you know I think of healthcare in in very basic in basic ways, and I think a lot of people do. Um, you know, a lot of people that are not doctors, and you know, we're all patients. Um, essentially, I'm healthy until I'm not, right? Binomial, two states. Right. And and vitality right. seems to take things in a direction that's that's much more nuanced than that. And I know wellness is is a broader category that, that sort of addresses Correct. that. Correct. Um, and yeah, like you know, I turned 40 a couple of years ago. Um, and I can tell, like I'm not, I'm not what I was when I was 20 in my 20s. Things are different. Yeah. yeah. Um, things were better in my 20s. I didn't appreciate that. I can see the distinction and I care. I definitely care. And I wonder like, you know, what, am I going to notch down again? Yes. That's what's going to happen at 50, right. 60, 70. I'm going to keep notching down. 
Right. Uh, and at 50, you'll appreciate, uh, and at 50, you will realize that you didn't appreciate 40. Oh my God. See, I'm not even there yet. <laughs> I'm not even there. That That's disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, 40 is a lovely age, you, you know, live it up and, 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 you know, take it all in and, and realize that if you are 40 years old now, you only get to keep that for one year. I know. I know. And, and, you know, it's, it's a good time in the sense that we're not broke typically at 40, we're not broke. <laughs> so, so we yeah. have a little bit more, we have more we're in between. We're in between. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not all bad. Definitely. Um, so yeah, thinking about vitality, like what, what is it? What can we call it generally for, for the audience and for people? Like, I mean, I don't have a great definition for it. I, I hope you do. Um, that, that's a tough one. Um, so, uh, so generally speaking, when when people think of health or the word health care, um, they are thinking disease. They are thinking, yep. okay, well, uh, I got high blood pressure, or, or I got uh, diabetes, or I got something. You know, I'm sick. Mm-hmm. Um, the word vitality refers to you're not sick, but we're taking you from good to better, and we're just making sure that you actually don't get sick. So. Um, and that's that's really the all-encompassing uh, theme here. Uh, the other things about vitality is that we kind of want, uh, at least I do, I want men uh, to be able to enjoy the the main joys of life for as long as they possibly can, uh, up to whatever their genetic potential is. Can't do it beyond, okay. but. Uh, but I feel that a lot of men uh, think that 40 is when things end. But really, 40 for a lot of men is when things actually start, at least for me. I'm 45 years old. I'm having the time of my life right now um, in every way you can think of. Um, so so I, I want men to know that that is possible for everyone and it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. So, Oh, definitely. OK, well, that's great to hear. And we'll definitely get to costs because I. I have a for big, sure. <laughs> big focus. For on, sure. For sure. I mean, there's I, sure. I feel like it's our nation's number one problem. Really. For sure. Yes. Um, so but but before that, thinking about because you mentioned about um, hormone replacement therapy um, as a focus. And so that would seem to be the primary treatment of, you would say, disorders around vitality. Can I name it as such? Or is that just to. Um, so re- repeat the question for me, James. Oh, um, hormone replacement theory. Is that the primary tool that's being used to treat um, any sort of deficiencies in vitality? Yes. Um, um, generally, if um, if you are over the age of 30 and if your testosterone is suboptimal, not necessarily low, but if it is suboptimal and you are not achieving the goals that you want uh, metabolically and in terms of your fitness and in terms of your relationships, your sexual relationships, your romantic relationships, the uh, the level of energy you have to do the work you need to do, to do the things that you need to do, then we diagnose you with hypogonadism, which is a fancy way of saying testicular hypofunction, meaning you're not producing enough testosterone to meet your own particular needs. And so we make sure that we optimize that level and and, uh, make sure that you get a dose that's enough for you to get the results you want, so long as the results you want are realistic. And at the same time, we make sure that the dose is not too high, that it's not safe anymore. So that's kind of that's kind of what we do. Interesting, interesting. So, like the the thought that strikes my mind when when I hear that is, um, 
because I can only think in examples. Um, sure, sure. I like yeah. to think of examples too. Okay. It's the best way to understand, to understand to complex topics. Yeah, yeah. So, so for this one in particular, reacting to what you said, um, because you framed it around the patient's goals. So it's really, yes. um, and so now I have to think about that practically. Let's say, you know, I'm with my wife on Sunday night. I've got a long week ahead of me. You know, I, I would say, you know, 30 year old me would be like, ah, you know, Monday's a really difficult day. Not going to spend time this way on Sunday night. You know, 20 might have been like, I don't care. I can do this all the time. And 40 is like a hard no. So is that an example of where this sort of treatment would come in where someone's like, oh, you know, I'd, I would just like to do more, have more energy and balance out all my work. Energy levels, uh, the, 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 the number of factors that determine energy in a man are, you know, it's, a, it's not a long list. It's not. It's really A, uh, sleep, B, food, C, whether or not you're anemic, and D, hormone levels, and five, whether or not you have depression. That's really, these are really, that's it. There's no other reasons. Um, some people out there, I mean, we will check thyroid to make sure they don't have a thyroid problem. Um, and then some people have an allocation problem. So let me give you an example of, of a man who has an allo energy allocation problem. It's actually a patient I saw a couple of weeks ago. This is a real patient. So a okay. uh, 46-year-old guy looks great, okay? Uh, he's actually, a, he's actually an, uh, he runs a gym, okay? And uh, he comes in, he's giving me the typical complaints and, and his number one complaint to me was that he feels he has no energy. That's what he feels. Even though he's doing he, all this stuff. <laughs> so, okay. so, 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 so I asked him, I, I took a full history and the dude has five businesses. He runs five businesses and he works out like a, you know, like a maniac. Well, of course you don't have energy. It's gone. Um, in a particular 24 hour period, you'll produce a certain amount of energy. How you allocate that is your business. So if you are involved in a work-related project that's taking all of your mind because you're so excited about it and you've been and, and it doesn't feel like work anymore, well, guess what? You're not gonna have interest in sex or anything else because that's where the energy went. Mm -hmm. And um the body the body um, gets rid of sex when energy levels are low because sex is considered uh, not primary for the body. And uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, um, evolution doesn't want procreation to happen when en energy levels are low. So, um, so that's you know, so so that's so that's again an allocation problem, and you see that commonly. In among businessmen, successful men, you know, they'll come to you and say, oh, I'm tired. I don't have energy. I need Adderall. I need testosterone. I need this. And you talk to them and you're like, oh, my God, you're full of energy, you know, um, but you don't have it because, well, you're doing a million things. Uh, congrats. You're, you're a successful yeah, man. I have a scaling problem. You can understand that. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Um, so I did come across this study. Um, and I think you, well, you must have heard about it. You probably know what I'm about to say. Um, across the country, testosterone levels are in decline. A, is that true? Because that's scary. Um, yeah. And B, like, any thoughts on that? What to do? What's going on there? Like, why would that be true? Okay, well, that's a fantastic question. And um, 
everything I tell you with regards to what I think is happening is going to be my opinion. It is not going to be a fact. Got it. So, so everything I say is based on two sources, my medical education and my clinical experience with patients. So I do some reading on the side because you have to do it as a doctor. It's called continuing medical education. So I do that. Yep. But, you know, uh, so what is up with declining testosterone levels? Well, A, are testosterone levels really declining or because we're now checking more for the levels? So more people are getting checked and we're finally getting to see uh, the real picture of how much testosterone men have. But on the other hand, on the other hand, yes, there are real factors that do reduce testosterone levels. Let me give an example. I had a gentleman who was in, uh, in his early 30s, okay? And he came to me for hormone replacement. We looked at his testosterone and it was 860. So I told him, uh, you're a good dude. Your testosterone is good. And I kept seeing him as, as his primary care doctor. Okay. Um, at some point, the guy, both of his parents died at the same time, okay? And it was a very traumatizing event for him. But after that, he moved on, got back to work, to the gym, back to normal life, and came to get his testosterone checked, and it was 35. 35. This is a man who was in the 800s. He's now 35. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it, so I repeated the test. I thought that the blood yeah. was mixed, so there was of course. something. Repeated the test, came back 30-something. I was like, okay, th this is not. Come back in a month, dude. Let's, this, this doesn't make sense. Repeated the test third time in the 30s too. You know, so I did the MRI to see if there's any tumor in his brain that's causing a reduced stimulation of the testicles. Mm -hmm. And MRI turned out negative. And he is a perfect example of how intense psychological trauma in a man can ruin the testicle. And so you don't make testosterone anymore. We actually see that very commonly in veterans. Guys who go to war, they're young, they're healthy, they're big, they're horny. They come back from war, they're fucked. Their, their testicles are not working anymore. And, and there's no, come, there's no comeback from that? I got yeah. to Is there a generally comeback no. no, no, you generally don't come back from that. And you also see that with women too. A lot of women who are traumatized, uh, their ovaries don't work well. They have a problem uh, conceiving, having having babies. Uh, you know, you, uh, you put them in high-stress environments, uh, if they're athletes or whatever, they can't have babies anymore. So um, now, are there other factors about our country and our culture mm -hmm. that are causing testosterone levels to be lower in men? Well, of course they, of course there are. I'll tell you right now. What is the biggest epidemic in the U.S. right now? It's obesity, isn't it? Absolutely. Okay, isn't that isn't that what you hear everywhere? Isn't that what the numbers are saying? Okay, yep. so it's obesity now. Obese people walk around with high insulin and a lot of fat, and that decreases testosterone. So, okay. um, so when you look at the testosterone numbers as a whole for the entire nation, that actually goes hand in hand with obesity. So what you're looking at is not all of a sudden American men are less manly. No, you're looking at the fact that there's a lot of obesity in America. There's a lot of processed food. And we see that also as evidenced by the doubling rate 
of colon cancer among men and women under 50 from 1995 to today. The rate has doubled. That tells you that we're putting processed foods and supplements that are not regulated that are causing cancer. So uh, I will tell you right now, increased insulin, obesity uh, is the most likely cause of declining testosterone levels uh, among men in the US. That makes sense. So I'm a vegetarian. What are your thoughts? <laughs> you're thinking obesity, and I've been able to avoid that all my life. But I, I'm a I'm a vegetarian. Um, yes. Is that, a, is that a good game plan in your book? Would you Would you recommend something like that? Okay, a great question. I am not a vegetarian, and I do not re recommend vegetarianism. And I feel that way because um, I look at food as a source of nutrition. Now, obviously, I'm like everyone else in the world. I sometimes use food for stress relief. Yeah. I use food because of compulsion, because of habit. I do that. I'm like that too. But for the most part, I try. I really try to consider food as just a source of nutrition. So what does that actually mean? What does nutrition even mean? Okay. When you say this is nutritious, this is not. What does that mean? Okay. I'll tell you what it means. Um, every single day of your life, every part of your body, your skin, your eyes, your mouth, everything, your heart, your kidney, your whatever, your bone, anything you look at is going through a turnover process, meaning some cells are dying and some, some cells are, um, uh, are giving birth to new cells and things get renewed, right? So that's what's happening constantly in the body. So to me, the word nutrition means being able to replace what's gone. So whatever protein that is in your muscle, in your bone, in your brain, wherever it is, it gets replaced because it has an ex uh, expiration date. You use it, you lose it. Now you got to replace it. So yeah. how do you replace this nutritious food? So to me, the word nutrition refer refers to food items that can replace the things that you lose, that your body needs. So now the next question is, well, um, what's the best way to replace something you have? Well, the best way is to obtain it from an organism that is closest to you, evolutionary speaking. Now, I'm not recommending that you go eat people. So because it doesn't look <laughs> like that. So, and, okay. and by the way, and by the way, there are situations in which it is not unethical to consume a human. If there's two people and they're climbing Mount Everest and one of them dies yeah, and the other yeah. one is hanging out and there's <laughs> no one to save them, they're going to eat the other guy. Yeah, it's happened. It happened in the end. And it's happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Now, so now we look for something closer to us, you know, another mammal maybe. And in the U.S., what we have is beef. Of course, you hear this and you're like, oh, this guy is crazy. Uh, I've read a million articles saying that red meat is bad for you. Okay. And you're right. You're right. There's a million of them out there that say red meat uh, is the root of all evil. Okay. But here's a, here's, here's a problem. When they are doing the research with red meat, they're not telling you what red meat that is. So if you are doing research with burgers and sausage and pepperoni and uh, chuck uh, meat that's, uh, you know, that's poor that quality. Stuff, yeah. 
Yeah, like you don't know what part of the animal it's coming from. Uh, I'll tell you right off the bat, it's going to show strokes and heart attacks. You don't even need a study. You know, it, it just you're eating trash. That's that's just that's that's just how it is. But if you are eating a piece of steak that looks like a steak, it's all red and there's a little bit of fat in it. You know what you're eating. You're eating the muscle of a mammal. So you're eating the protein that you need for your own body. You're getting the antioxidants that you need. You're getting the iron that you need and the B12 that you need and the calcium. There's a million other components to a steak. As a matter of fact, in the United States today, the only food item, the only food item that you can put on a plate alone and that will give you a complete meal that has the right amount of carbs. Yes, carbs. I said that. And fat, okay. the right type of fat and the right type of protein, it would be a piece of steak. You can have it with just a glass of water, and that's a full meal. So um, um, so that's how I feel about ve vegetarians, actually. Uh, and I will tell you, I have had patients who are vegetarians, and they do, um, they do get the same cholesterol issues as the people who are eating meat. Because one of the things about vegetarianism is that one of the, one, one of the bad uh, one of the things they say about red meat is that it increases your cholesterol and people get scared. Well, you know, I've had a vegetarian woman, you know, just last week coming to see me and her cholesterol is through the roof and she's vegetarian. So um, that's my story. My right. cholesterol has been through the roof since, uh, since, I don't know, since we first checked it at 15, 16. How uh, much, uh, if you don't mind me asking. How, uh, it's how in the high, high 200s every time. Um, last time I went, it was over three. Um, but what's your, uh, what, what's your, um, HDL, uh, total cholesterol over HDL. That I, I don't recall. Because that's what because that's what determines the risk. Uh, you can be totally fine and safe with a total cholesterol over two hundred. Um, okay. It, it, it's it's the matter of total cholesterol over uh, HDL, which is the high quality cholesterol, which is the good okay. cholesterol. I'll tell you what the doctor said. The doctor said anyone in your condition, I automatically put them on a statin. You cannot you cannot go. <laughs> he's a doctor over in Englewood, New Jersey. He's like, you can't, you can't keep, you can't keep at these levels for long term. This is terrible. Um, something, you know, he was saying that the LDL is really too high. That was his focus. So I said, okay. all right, I took it for some time. Um, okay. It created some pain in my body. And he was like, ah, you know, right. the, the symptoms, it can happen. I was like, all right. So, you know, we do this. I'm sure lots of people do this, but really we sort of um, self-dose. Like, it's like, all right, I'm going to take less of this. If I have to take any at all, I'm going to take less of this. So I took it once every two days versus every day or something like that. And then I got tested and I was able to keep the levels down. But here's here's what happened, which is interesting, because I'm actually I don't take it anymore. I don't take it despite his best his best recommendations. I don't take it. So I I had to go to the hospital because um, I had some chest pain, mostly stomach. It was a stomach bug, but it just affected my whole abdomen area. Um, so I went to the ER and, and I had some chest pain. And, you know, once you cross a certain age, they treat it very differently. They're like, oh, you're right. talking about chest pain. And so. I ended up in the um, the MRI unit. They they put some radioactive dye in me, and they were checking. They were visualizing all the the flow, my circulatory system. Um, and the cardiologist came in, and he was like, "You know, you're perfectly good. There's no blockages. There's nothing wrong here." Um, so I was like, "Whoa, there's no blockages. I've had this high cholesterol for decades. Um, just a little bit of time on on a statin, and then I didn't even stick with the statin. Really, I was I was really just terrible with the regimen." Um, so I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to take this anymore. So I just stopped taking it. Um, I was like, I, I, I just don't see the justification. 
in taking something yeah, forever, forever. Um, and, and, you know, if the blockages aren't there, I'm being told that my cholesterol is too high. It's going to create blockages and that's going to give me a heart attack. That's the sequence. So if I go and I get, and if someone tells me using the best technology they've got that I have no blockages, I just can't push myself. Right, right, right. And then, you know, uh, I haven't seen reports across the last decades that heart disease has dropped. I know statin use has gone up, but I haven't seen, I mean, am I wrong? Tell me if I'm wrong. You no, know, you're not wrong. wrong. Okay. No, no, you're, no, no, you're not, you're not wrong. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm going to point you back to what I pointed you back to earlier in the conversation, obesity and elevated level levels of insulin. That is, that is the that is the root cause of everything. Name every disease under the sun, and obesity and high insulin levels are contributors. It doesn't matter: cancer, dementia, heart disease, uh, osteoarthritis, infectious disease, whatever you want. Name it. Obesity, and high insulin levels are related. Also, nobody nobody gets a heart attack from just high cholesterol. That that makes no sense. Now. If you have high cholesterol and you're fat, excuse me for for using slang terms, but but it is what it is. Yeah. If you know, or if you smoke cigarettes, or if you're diabetic, uh, or if you are under a lot of psychological stress all the time, uh, sure, you get a heart attack from that. But cholesterol alone, it's not going to give you a heart attack. It's not going to give you a blockage of your artery. It needs a lot of other things for it to do that. You need like you need stars to align uh, to get a heart attack. So, okay. Well, that's, that's, I mean, you know, good to know for me, not good to know for so many people in, in the country. Now we're eating ourselves to death. That's kind of what I hear when, when, when I'm listening to you, we're eating ourselves to death. Um, and, and we're paying for it, right? Like we're paying for it. Absolutely. Like premiums are huge. They're, they're unrecognizably huge. And I think I, I miss it often because it gets taken out of the gross. And I feel like I'm too, <laughs> as a salaried person, like many people are. I'm too focused on the net and it, you know, I just consider it taxes and deductions, but, but um, the expenditures are huge and, and that's where I work. I work mostly in payment reform, but I work on it in the Medicare side um, in value-based care. Um, and I, and I think you hate Medicare <laughs> and value-based care, which is totally cool. Totally cool. I wouldn't, I would not defend Medicare. You know, we, we learned the most, we learned the most by talking to people we disagree with. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you're always talking to people who are on your side, then you know, it's not it's not interesting anymore. But you are correct about me. Um, and even though my videos on YouTube, you know, are about what I do, and I'm passionate about it, my uh, expressing myself on LinkedIn is totally different. You know, uh, I oppose managed care in, in all forms, not just Medicare. But but I do think Medicare is particularly bad. Now, remember, I'm looking at this from the standpoint of a physician. So um, right, I look at things a little differently. So sure, sure. Um, so. The history, just, just to set context um, for like managed care battling here, um, the I I would say that the the biggest the biggest promoter of managed care in terms of like uh, strategically from a government policy perspective, what can be done about it and what strengthens it and the direction it's taken with value based care um, is really around um, a disdain and a very heavy criticism towards fee for service. So folks have zeroed in on that and they're saying. You know what? Our expenditures, by and large, are driven by you know whether they have the data for it or not. It's a really complicated topic, but but to zero in, these expenditures are driven by fee for service. We're incentivizing um, providers, in particular, to perform as many expensive 
services as they can because they can keep billing for it. Um, and so that requires a huge oversight. That's where the administrative costs come in. Like, is this reasonable or not? We're, we're having adjudications on reasonable treatment, care delivery across all different pathways. And that's a really huge thing. That, that, that requires a lot of data. That's where data submissions come in. Um, then there's quality reporting. There's just so much infrastructure to manage fee-for-service, uh, at least once, you're, once you have managed care in place. Um, so, But when you're looking at the evolution of value-based care in particular, um, providers have been getting more and more upset across the last decade in particular. Uh, and that's that. And, and there's a few things. There's like, well, you know, from an external perspective, you might say, you know, this is the first time they've had significant oversight <laughs> in large. This is the first time um, where, you know, they can't, they buy, many of them can't survive economically outside of this system and they don't like interacting with this system. Um, in you terms mean of you, you, you're talking about physicians? You're saying I'm, that yeah, I, I think okay. I think they they feel that way. Like the independent right. physician um, is getting killed <laughs> in terms of how it can practice and whether it can whether that person can do it solo um, because the 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 costs of 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 reporting everything quality costs dealing with dealing with managed care in particular is I think the big cost there. Right, uh, right. Managed uh, care is the cost. Yeah, managed well, care it, is the cost. It drives so, that cost. Yeah, it drives right, that right. cost. So, so, so it is. It is quite. It is quite ironic that uh, that when you go to Wikipedia and when you read about managed care, uh, it tells you that it was invented to control costs. That was the <laughs> yeah. goal of it, yeah. which is yeah. ironic because it is the cost. So, uh, so it's yeah. it's really so. Sometimes these arguments, when I hear them, or when I see talking heads on TV. It really, it really makes me feel that um, that I'm in a circus or something. You know, it's, it's like almost you're looking at this guy. It's obviously blue, and then everybody's telling you it's red, and you're like, wait a second, am I the fool? Am I the one? <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, you're not the fool. You're not so, the fool. It's um, yeah, it's just so, a matter so, of talking it. You share right, your message, right, and it's like right. Yeah. And the other thing, James Haven, um, the whole fee for service thing. Okay, um, so everybody's shitting on fee for service right now. Yeah. Okay. But here's the problem. Fee for service is the most ethical and the best way to do medicine. But the fee needs to go for the service, not the middleman. And the fee should not be collected from a faceless, emotionless, distant corporation that bears no witness to any of the events that took place in the exam room. So fee for service is the golden rule. This is you you talk about I don't I don't know what your religious background is, whether you're Muslim or Jewish or Christian, whatever it is that you are, all religions, all of them condemn shortchanging the worker and not paying them fairly. Unfair unfair wages is condemned by all religions and philosophies. And so managed care, the essence of it is the is applying downward pressure on the monetary value of a physician's service. That's unethical. That's that that's against all religions. It's a it's an abomination of a system. You know, if a nation chooses to treat a sector of its workers that way, 
you know, then that's that's immoral. So now they're attacking fee for service. But what they're not telling you is that there's fee for service is not wrong. Fee for service is how we live all of our lives. You know, you go you go to the grocery store, you know, if you put six items in your grocery bag, you're going to pay for just these six items. If you put 12, you're going to pay for 12. If it's fee for service. A la yeah, carte. But, but I can't, I cannot evaluate. You, you know what I'm about to say. I cannot evaluate medical care like I can groceries. And that's where, that's where but it becomes complicated. A patient but can't, patient no, can. no I, don't, patient I don't think can. so. I don't think so. I think, a, I can't say, you know, I, I can't say unequivocally that a patient who's really invested, they naturally would be if they're, if they're aware enough, if they're healthy enough to be invested in their own healthcare uh, treatment, uh, oh, whether even, they can- Even unhealthy follow. patients, uh, James Haven, even unhealthy patients are perfectly able to determine the value of the service they get. No, I mean, I mean, like, you know, you got to be, you got to be able to sit up and, and hear it and listen, that kind of like base borderline function. Um, and, you know, people do get super invested and they will learn about things once once they have a problem. And, and you're right. So so there there is a learning curve there, but there seems to be an imbalance. So so some would say it's difficult. It's pretty difficult to compare receipt, getting getting medical care versus especially because um, there's price transparency is just starting to come on board. And we didn't really have that for a long time. And I'm not sure if it's really going to blow up. I mean, there are apps out there and people are trying to do it. Um, I hope it does just so that we can see it as an experiment. Does it work or not? It's um, not going to make a difference. You uh, don't think see, so? See, uh. seeing, uh, <laughs> no, seeing, okay, you can, you can, uh, um, you can look at the prices for a health service over a geographic area. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But that's still not going to help you because um, uh, let's say the MRI in neighborhood X is cheaper than the MRI in neighborhood, in neighborhood Z. Well, guess what? Your doctor is going to order the MRI in the neighborhood they want to order it to. You don't get to make that decision. It's the doctor who makes it. And the doctor doesn't make decisions because they're evil, but the doctor makes it based on their EHR, what is it connected to, logistics mm -hmm. logistics, and things like that. So, you know, uh, there's there's a there's a fellow on LinkedIn. He's trying to do good in the world. He, he made an app called Billy. Lovely app, by the way. I, I downloaded it, I, I used it. Lovely app, it's easy to use, very well done. Not gonna work, sorry. I mean, but uh, but I love him. I love what he's trying to do. And I actually put a lot of comments under his uh, thread to explain to him from a physician standpoint why this is not, you know, uh, this is not practical. So it's it's good for curiosity purposes that you know what a yeah. CT scan can cost, but you're not going to control that. Is that, do you remember his name? Is that Bricker, Dr. Bricker? No, no, no. It's, uh, uh, is it, is it Walensky something? Um, okay. Uh, Okay. Um, but the app is Billy. The app is Billy. It's a lovely app. I've, I've downloaded it and I actually use it for personally because I can self-prescribe a CT scan. So I've used it. I've benefited oh, from awesome. the app. But, uh, but again, as a patient, uh, I don't think it will be practical. In fact, it might cause anxiety because let's say you go see your doctor and then your doctor sends you to get a, an MRI. And then you look at Billy and you realize that the place you're in is expensive. Mm-hmm. Now that is going to cause anxiety because you can't do anything about it. Yeah. What are you going to do? Call your doctor and say, "Hey, doctor, this MRI uh, center you referred me to is expensive. Can you change it?" Your doctor will tell you, "Hey, my man, um, my EHR is not connected to the other ones that you like, so I won't be able to see results, and I'm liable. I have to see the results." 
So I'm yeah. sorry, man. Yeah, you would have to, to, I mean, some so, people can do it. Some people can do it, but you'd have to be super persistent. And I hear, I, I get what you're saying. It's not a broadly applicable solution. Like my wife would do it. My wife would call up and she'd be like, EHR, just fax it over. Or, or she'll just, she just has a, she hasn't, she's a type of person that can, she has an answer for everything, but that's, that's rare. And you can't design products around people like that. You got to make it right. simple. It's got to, it's got to work for the masses. Right. 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 Yeah. So, I mean, I, I hear your beef uh, and in terms of managed care, it's, it's a huge expense. Um, it is beef. Recently. I like, I like how you put it. I, this is, this word is very, is very descriptive of how I feel. Beef, big time beef. <laughs> yeah, you've got beef. No, no, I hear, I see it in your posts. You've got serious beef <laughs> with managed care. Um, and yeah, it, it increased the buying power by and large. It increased buying power that we would never have otherwise have. I, you know, in a simple terms, that's how I see it. it. It allowed huge price increases, mostly on the hospital side. I think that's becoming a consensus. Would you agree? It's really on the hospital side. I don't think people are saying that doctors in particular, but it's more hospital administrators that are getting the full brunt of the blame here on uh right, right, I don't know if that's right. yeah, well, well well here's the thing people people shit on hospital prices and hospital charges and I agree yeah. they are exorbitant they are non-transparent and they are fucked up I completely agree however however you cannot you cannot aim at one player in the game and tell them that they're cheating when all the other players are cheating as well so if you want hospitals to behave and to be ethical, then the payer must behave and be ethical. So you want the hospital charges to change? You got to change how the hospital gets paid. That's, that, that's it. Um, I have a friend. She's a physician. She's a hospitalist. And she has a primary care office. She's in Los Angeles. And she has, um, there's a nearby ch Catholic church. And they uh, have her as their doctor. So she sees the nuns. And a couple of nuns required surgery. So my friend approached the hospital to figure out the cash price of the surgery. They wouldn't tell her. They yeah. would not tell her. And she's a hospitalist at the hospital. And they still wouldn't, yeah. That's... They would not tell her. And you know, there's laws out there that say you have to reveal prices and shit like that. Okay, you know, and I've, and I've made comments on LinkedIn and I've said, it doesn't matter what the law is. The question is who's enforcing it? No one. The 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 fines are too small. The fines are too small. That's And that's yeah. the lobby. Yeah. That's the lobby, right? I mean, yeah. that's AHA exactly. by and large. That's why, and that's managed care for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think the fact that we have... That these major insurers have billions in in cash just sitting. Um, that 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 by definition shows that there's a problem. We didn't want what is essentially patient patient funds. That that money all came from patients, um, and to see it parked on well, the well, well, insurers, it came, it, well, it comes from patients and it comes from uh, exploited doctors and nurses. Okay, I hear you there. That's yeah. where the money's it's, from. It's That's a discount. Yeah, 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 it's a because, discount because there. because profit comes from both. Revenue and costs. So, yeah. so the revenue is from the patients, and the re reduced cost is by shortchanging the physician and denying them pay fair wage. Okay, okay. So let's go back to fee for service. You're saying it's the most ethical, and I, I certainly yes. see it as the simplest, the simplest transaction. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that, you know, we love simple, but exactly. I still feel like there are certain, there are certain things about it that require trust. I hate systems that require sure. trust. 
and and the trust is applied to the doctor where it's like you know is the doctor choosing the absolute best and uh, you know the the best path of care for that patient because these services cost different things really they they're, they're not all equally cost so what about like right. subscription based is that something do you see that's is that too far i mean it's closer i'm not saying there's no managed care like forget managed care but and you still get paid directly so there's no middleman but it's a subscription so that there's no incentive really to be like, oh, let's give you A and not B. It's just, look, just right, right. No, I think subscription is, is great. I think for okay. I think for primary care doctors, I think subscription is the way to go. Okay. I really do. If, if, if you are labeling yourself as a primary care doctor, the, the, the best way to go is to go independent and do a subscription-based service. So, and that's fair because in primary care, about two thirds of the work you do for the patient is actually outside of the visit. So it should be compensated for. And the only way to do so is, is through a subscription model. So yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. I don't know how many docs are doing it. <laughs> you see more, more and more of it, direct pay. Um, but uh, I think I think we're just, there's just such this huge momentum where doctors are just being forced. And I don't know if it's clear that they're being forced to do that, but um, they can't, they, they just want to enter the managed care system. They need to join a practice, right. With other doctors, because they have to share the overhead costs. Um, they need maybe like admitting privileges at local hospitals. They just need, there's just like this infrastructure that they need to fit themselves into. Um, and so they just go down that path. So right. the, the direct primary yeah. care movement is exaggerated. Um, you see, you mean like, it's not that it's not that expansive. It's, you mean exaggerated as in the benefits of it, or like, it's not really, no, no, it's, it's exaggerated in terms of how many doctors are doing it. Um, you, you see a lot of noise on LinkedIn. Um, and again, I think it is the way to go. I think it is the right thing to do, but is it prevalent? Oh, far from it. And is it, uh, is it applicable everywhere? No. Uh, If you don't have a lot of competition in a certain town or neighborhood, you can do it. But, you know, in uh, suburban uh, California, for example, uh, you cannot you cannot do uh, direct primary care because no matter how good you are, there's going to be a, a doctor in the same zip code who takes a ten dollar copay and accepts any insurance. So how are you going to compete with that? Uh, so that's the issue. Um, a lot of the uh, folks who have direct primary care practices on LinkedIn, they, they're more in like rural or like semi-rural. I've seen uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. So you say it's a competition. That is something I've seen. It's, it's always, it's never in a city. Exactly. Okay. And just to be clear, you're, you don't take a single pair. You're not, you're not working with a single insurer. You're just straight up. Well, well, I, I, I used to, but uh, as of 2021, nope, we're, uh, we haven't received any penny from any, any person other than the patient. Interesting. Interesting. And, and really it's a specialty practice. So that's why, because you're in a suburban area, you're not in a rural spot. No, no, I'm not in a rural spot at all. Uh, in fact, I'm in an urban in an urban spot. Oh, okay. And, and and you are correct. You are correct. Even though I am not a specialist by training, I am a specialist occupationally by what I do. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I'm able to get somebody to come here and pay is because I have something that stands out. If I was just doing the regular stuff, you know, primary care, I don't think I'd be able to to charge anyone because again, in the same zip code, there's three other doctors who will do the same thing and will take a $10 copay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about this a lot. I, I don't know how to disengage from these systems because I don't like paying my premiums 
Um, so it's like doctors don't like dealing with the insurance company. I don't like giving my money to the insurance company. Then then don't. I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you the calculus. I go home to my wife and I say, honey, why don't we why don't we do something different? Let's explore some different options here. Yeah. I know we've been giving Aetna and I look like a thousand dollars a month. <laughs> for, yeah, fuck that. For, and, and a huge like deductible. It's not that eh, it's like six hundred bucks or something. Um and I'm just like, you know, maybe we could do something a little bit different. Maybe we can get subscription-based care. And she looks at me and she's like, anything can go wrong at any time with the kids. She's right. And then she's she right. just gets nervous. And then it's like, all right, well, if you're nervous, then we're going to keep paying. And But still, I keep my eye out. I don't know what the solutions are. The, the one thing is that I don't have a great plan. Like I tell her, I don't like what we're doing here. I don't like that we're throwing all this money over here. But what do we do? Instead, like we could go for subscription-based care. We could go for cash pay. Um, but then it's the acute care. Like what happens when one of us breaks a leg? So it's like, it just gets right. more complicated. Right. Like how do I? Right. How do I do? So you're, ba you're, you're basically, so both you and your wife, basically you're talking about unforeseen high cost health events. That's, yes. what, you're, that's yes. what you're talking about, right? Okay. Like cancer so or a car accident. Right, right. So you get into a health sharing plan. I pay 170 bucks a month. You're doing a health share? Yeah, yeah. I pay 170 bucks a month to Zion. Uh, I got the membership in what, like five minutes, you know? And um, they are going to be there when I need them. Hopefully I never do. And I pay cash for everything else. I got a stress test recently. I actually got two of them because I wanted the treadmill and I wanted the ultrasound stress test. I paid out of pocket. You know, uh, I'm getting colonoscopy uh, in a couple of months. I'm paying out of pocket. You know, my meds for my blood pressure, I pay out of pocket. And it still ends up being way cheaper than these people who are like 25, 25 years old, healthy. They're on healthcare.gov and they're paying 600 bucks a month. Yeah. Insane. I, I have a patient who is um, 52. He's a business owner, super healthy guy, not a single medical condition. He comes here for hormone replacement. His Obamacare plan is $980 a month. Yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's completely insane. It's complete. And, and, and it's not that great of a plan. So like if he wants to brand medicine, he still needs like some shenanigans. Like it's not even, it's not even helping that way. Now with a health share plan, you got a deductible and they will take care of everything that is unforeseen and high cost, which is what the idea of insurance is which is why you don't use your auto insurance to, to fill your tank. You don't use your auto yeah. insurance to get your tires. You pay. Yeah, but that's if right. Everyone, that's right. If yeah. everyone wanted to use auto insurance to rotate their tires, it's going to cost an arm and a leg. That's a good example. It's right, because it is insurance. Right. Um, the human body is like a car. The human body is like a car. It's like an engine. It needs maintenance. And sometimes the damage is too much. So that, just like that. So it's just exactly like auto insurance. Interesting. interesting. Uh, you know, I got to look more into that. So the health share and you're confident they'll pay. That's really the question. Oh, people course, get a little they've nervous. Been around. Those people have been around forever. And um, do you have to be and, Christian, though, to sign up for that? No, no, okay. no, no, no. no. Uh, right. th there are Christian ones. So there's so there's there, there's a list of them. OK, OK. But the the non the non denominational ones are Zion and Sidera. OK. Yeah. They're, so they're non denominational. Um, but they have to, is there anything weird going on with them in terms of how they're legally structured? Because um, I thought they, 
they couldn't call themselves a health insurance company. Correct. Right. So then they have to say, well, what, well, what do we call you? And it's a health share. Health share plan. So everyone puts their money in a pot and somehow they do some. Which is insurance. Yeah, right, right. Except it's weird because they do something. I, I, I think a friend told me something like this once where one, they actually identify like the giver and the receiver in any sort of claim that get, that gets forward. It's not like some central entity that pays. So they really sort of reinforce the sharing aspects of it. Does that make sense? Um, that there, no, no. Th there are a couple of ones that do that. Okay. Uh, but not Zion. No, Zion okay. is an insurance plan. They just can't call themselves that way because insurance companies lobbied against them calling themselves that way. Okay. So it's really just a naming thing. You can't call yourself insurance if you're a health Exactly. Insurer. Exactly. How so what do they, and they're not profit, right? That's the whole thing. Like they don't, they're not accumulating profits here. They okay. are, we're just a group, a network. So, 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 so James, I don't know if they're for profit or nonprofit, but the whole nonprofit thing is bullshit anyways. All organizations need profit to be sustainable and to pay their employees. We as Americans should celebrate profit. There's nothing wrong with profit. We love profit, but it should go to someone who's offering value. And if Zion is making a fuck ton of money, and if they're driving Bentleys, so be it. They're providing value. And that value is the fact that I can pay only 170 bucks a month, and I can sleep in peace knowing that if I ever need surgery, or if I ever get a, get a stroke, there's someone there to help me out. Okay. I can't argue with that. I can't. That's 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 perfectly fine. I mean, we've had we've seen enough in the news around nonprofit hospitals <laughs> that get right. these enormous bullshit, tax breaks. Right? Yeah, bullshit. huge tax breaks. Right. Um, right. I think Dr. Gay Gay Bai, if I'm pronouncing her name. Oh, correctly. she's great. She's oh, she's she's my favorite. She's uh, <laughs> uh, she might be the next president some someday, except she's too ethical. They they won't. They won't. <laughs> she's good. Yeah, she yeah. she's fantastic. Um, yeah. She's calling them out for sure. She is definitely uh, showing the dirty laundry for sure. Yeah, she was the first, I think, on the PBM scene years back, maybe like five years back. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. She was the first one. I was like, PBMs, what's wrong with them? Who cares? CVS is a PBM. What does that mean? And yeah, she, yeah. she was breaking it down on LinkedIn posts. Um, and and ultimately, I think she, she uh, testified in Congress around the PBM issue. So, um, yeah, she's super influential. So, right. yeah, no, I'm totally in agreement with you on, on profit there. Um, and whatever system works. So I just wanted to take a step back because we blazed through this earlier, thinking about obesity in the country. So there's there's like this new class of medications out there. I don't know much about it. And, you know, I would have to take too much of my time to really learn about it. Um, but Wagovi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is- Yeah, yeah you got class? it. Okay. So as someone who's involved in healthcare, working in healthcare payment reform, um, still very much in the in the essence of like looking at uh, what's can, you know, because the system we're in is like the Medicare at the lead, determining what's, you know, what should be paid for, what shouldn't, um, setting rates, and then everyone else sort of follows suit to some extent. Um, right. Which so is that, ridiculous. But yeah, anyways, but that's, that's where we, are. yeah, yeah. Until they do something different, that's, that's where we are. So when you look at that and you look, you know, historically, there have been these medications that came out that are super high priced, but they're for very rare things. Um, like hepatitis C, remember that? That is like Gilead dropped something that was like $100,000, but it was a cure, um, right. but it's a, it was way priced. Like it was $100,000 a pop just, just to cure it. This makes sense because, you know, these people require longstanding treatment um, and, you know, you'll essentially spend that money, you know, five to 10 years out and much more versus just paying that. But the expense- So, 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 so am I getting from you 
that you're saying that it is not unfair for the medication to cost that much? Is that no, I'm just sort of, I'm just pointing at the history of the medicine where it's, it's essentially, this is what happened. Like it came on the scene, people balked at the price. And then they were like, well, you know, the justification is that it is a cure. Um, and, you know, you're going to make up the money down the road anyway. So it's like, all right, well, this is cheaper. The problem. I, 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 I don't buy that. It should, <laughs> should, should cost that much. And I think, and I think the reasons why medicines cost so much in the U.S. is because the buyer is a corporation and not an individual. And, okay. if, and if you have a product, if you make a product, and if you're trying to sell the product to people in your neighborhood, you're going to price it in a way that would make the people of your neighborhood able to buy it. But if you are selling your product to Apple and Microsoft and, Fa and, and, and Facebook, you're going to price your product so much higher because the buyer has more money and can pay. Yes. Yeah, that's and the so, buying power. That's the buying power problem for CMS. They have huge buying power. So that's and, and, and all insurance. Managed care in general. Yeah. It's not yeah. just CMS. CMS is the mothership of managed care, but you've yeah. got CMS and its daughters, Aetna, Anthem, Blue Cross, all of the all of the parasites it gave birth to. So mm -hmm. they are the ones who are <laughs> who are increasing the price. Why is it that people in Argentina get to pay only 200 bucks for Wigovi? And then and then yet Americans who who you know um get to pay twelve hundred bucks. Yeah, well that's that's the thing. That that was where I was going with that, with Vigovi in particular, because you know, we can make the case, the economical case, whether we agree for it or not, we can make some economical case around these niche medicines that are high priced. But when you have, you know, a moderately high priced medication, it's not, you know, a hundred thousand a year, a hundred thousand a year, I don't think it is, but it's high enough. It's it's quite high, and it treats the problem that seventy percent of the country has. That that's going to explode, like that. That's going to add huge, uh, real costs to our system, where we would we would be looking at higher copays, some sort of variation. We'd be paying more taxes. Um, certainly, premiums would go up. Like you couldn't you couldn't do that. And part of me, when I look at that, my my internal reaction is, I'm sure Wagovi is good for some people, but as like a brand new medicine that just gets dropped and in two to three years, like all of us are paying a heck of a lot more. Like I'm just not in favor of that. Like personally, when I think about it, like I'm really sick of paying. I, I just ranted for the last 30 minutes and I'm really happy about Zion and what you told me about health shares. Like I'm really sick. I don't want to pay $1,500 a month. I'm sorry. Yeah, a month in like three to five years from now for health insurance. And in yeah, it's, high, it's highway robbery. Yeah, yeah, of course. I don't want to do that. So, and I look at things like Wigovi and I'm like, whoa, this thing's got to go. Like I do not. I look at my. I don't want to see that thing. That thing get right made. because insurance companies will use it as a license to increase their premiums. Of course. Yes. Yes. That's what it is. That's really is. Of course. You know. Of course. Um, so yeah, I'm a little. I'm nervous about Wigovi in particular, even though I know that at least some people are saying it works. It it works really well. I've heard from the studies for certain people. Yes, it does. It works in terms of its its primary endpoint. You know, it's you're going to drop. A, a substantial amount of weight Correct. In, in the in the in the prescribed time period under which you take this medicine. That's like for the most part, yes, definite, yeah, okay. And then there's some significant side effects, probably. Some people are complaining, well, but I, I know I know this is all over the news and social media, and uh, they say Ozempic face, Ozempic this, Ozempic that, uh, stomach paralysis, and all that bullshit. You know, the these have to do with uh, not picking the right patient. 
not taking a proper medical history and not dosing the medication low and slow as it's supposed to. And also this happens when you're not counseling the patient. So there are factors that lead to these side effects. Otherwise, these medications are um, remarkably safe and effective and they, you know, and they, and they work and some people need them. And I think some of the vitriol that you are seeing on LinkedIn and other places about these medications just stems from the fact that some people are looking for attention. Some lawyers are looking to sue someone, make some money, something, something like that. So, okay. Could it be, could it be an attitude towards lifestyle diseases where it's like, you know, I understand like if I'm part of a group, I understand if I'm paying because, you know, you, you got cancer. So people in the group, there's cancer, there's car accidents, like I said earlier. But it's like if if people are overweight and they have that problem and they're going on years, it's harder to apply. It could be for some people, and I have a tint of this. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hide it. Um, it's harder to apply that sort of mentality where it's like, all right, we're all we're all pitching into the pool here in terms of either tax dollars or or even in a health share. Um, and you know, we're going to, we're going to sort of subsidize lifestyles that I think are probably not great. So, so that's an attitude. I don't know if it's, if it's pure attitude, but I think that sort of garners some attention where people are like, no, you shouldn't be treating this with medication at all. You need to, you know, and these things are hyperbole, but it's more like you need yeah, to, yeah. no, you need I, to I, live I, different. Like, right, right. So James, like James, I, I disagree with that. I, I, okay. I disagree with that uh, wholeheartedly. I think some Americans absolutely need these medications. Absolutely. Um, and and people people who who say that, okay, if you're obese, you got to change your lifestyle. It's easier said than done. People don't understand the physiology of obesity. If you are 300 pounds, if you are 300 pounds, then in a 24-hour period, you have to eat enough to feed a 300-pound. You can't tell this guy to eat the same amount of food that a hundred pound guy eats. That's not fair. You can't do that. Physiologically, it's impossible for that 300 pound dude. He's not gonna be able to work. He's not gonna be able to, to fucking walk. So we need something to help them get over the hump and drop the weight a little bit. That way they could actually eat less. Let me tell okay. you, obese people, for the most part, not all of them, but for the most part, hate being obese. They hate it. You know, and it drives them nuts. And they've tried so many things to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Most of them. There's a few crazies out there, okay? There's a few like feeders and, you know, God knows what, you know, oh, with feed, oh. comes, the, comes the good, okay. the bad, and the ugly. Uh, but we're not talking about those. But yeah. for the most part, most obese men and women hate being obese. And they're trying their best. But they can't because the physiology goes against them. And over the years, they've just accumulated the pounds and it's and and so these drugs are miraculous at getting them over the hump at least for just 6 months for just the first 6 months you get them over the hump and then they see a different version of themselves with like 20 30 pounds less at least then they can lower the portions so but 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 going back to what you said though because you made a you made an important point you said look we've got a real problem in the country the country's fat okay at some point our fucking military is going to be fat Okay, we can't have that. We got a problem. Yeah. And now we have a drug that works for that problem, except there's a problem. The drug is expensive. So if we're going to cover it to help Americans, we're going to go broke because our premiums are going to go up. Yes. These are all valid concerns. Therefore, therefore, 
these drugs should be an impetus for American society to reevaluate how drugs are sold. Let me give you an example here. The maker of Wigovi is Novo Nordisk, okay? Novo Nordisk would love to sell you the drug for 200 bucks, but they can't because they signed contracts with Aetna, Medicare, and whatever, and all these PBMs to sell at a certain price. And so the American citizen does not get to deal with the pharmacy and the pharmaceutical company directly. If we allow that, if we change the law and allow that, believe me, Novo Nordisk would love to sell at 200 because you know why? Because they want the volume. Yeah. They would love for their drug to get off the fucking shelves, but they can't because of PBMs. Now, when you go to Ecuador, there are no PBMs. So Novo Nordisk can basically duke it out with Ecuadorians and figure out a price. So that is the problem. So, so the problem here, you are correct. I agree with you. I don't think insurance should be covering these meds. Completely agree with you. But what we need to do is we need to challenge the law. And we need to see why is it that Novo Nordisk gives discounts to PBMs, but it doesn't give them to the individual buyer. That's the question to answer. That's the million dollar question. And these are the questions people don't ask because they're they don't. They're not informed. They're focusing on the wrong stuff. So um, to be to be fair, it's it's one. You know, no one would say, no one would say that you could learn healthcare payments uh, within even like six months of study. It's oh it's, my god, no! It took me years, different. and yeah. I'm a doctor, yeah. and I'm in it. So you'd yeah. think that I that I could pick it up quickly. No, it took me three years, a good three years. And okay. and by the way, the only reason why I know so much is because of private practice. If I was a W-2 doctor, I would not know a thing. They typically don't. They, they don't. don't. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Not on payments. Not on payments. So thank, this has been a great conversation. Um, I really sure, enjoyed sure. it. Is there anything, any other additional points on, the, on your practice you'd like to showcase? There are a few things that I would like to highlight. So one, there is a common misconception among young men who are on anabolic steroids there's a common misconception among them that uh, they don't need a doctor because they can buy it from the black market. They can dose themselves. They can go order the labs themselves directly and pay cash for everything and get th and get things done and go on Reddit and learn how to analyze labs. Mm. So, so that's a misconception among that population. Um, and, and the reason why they're wrong is because um, the type of labs that they order are not the right ones. And second, black market anabolic uh, steroids are not pure. And so a lot of them are not made for humans, they're for cattle. And the safety of these has not been well evaluated. And so they might get really nice muscles at the age of 25, but they'll die at 50. So, uh, so they do need a doctor. Now, another thing they usually say is the doctor, the testosterone doctor is useless because that doctor cannot prescribe high doses. Okay. Well, there's a, there's, there's some truth to that and there's, and there's some lies. So let's look at the truth. The truth is that most testosterone mills, these are the high volume 
testosterone clinics that you see down the block or on the internet, Instagram, they use a one size fits all. They'll prescribe only a teeny tiny bit of testosterone to avoid liability and side effects. And they don't care if you get benefits or not. They depend on high turnover. They don't even want you around for more than six months with them anyways. So, but when you see a doctor like myself, who is not a high volume clinic, I can prescribe higher doses than what, what is being prescribed at these mills, but still be within the safe margin. Now, a lot of, the, a lot of men out there, they think that you need a fuck ton of anabolic steroids to be big. It's not true. It is absolutely incorrect. You can get uh, from a specialized doctor such as myself, you can get a dose that is both safe and effective at getting you as big as your genes would allow you. And that's also, uh, you know, that's a misconception among, among men, which is pushing them into the black market uh, because they feel that doctors are useless in, uh, in, you know, in that area, but we're not useless. Most of us are, but some of, some of us are not. So that's interesting. So you said up until what your genes will allow. So you can't really just keep taking higher doses of anabolic steroids, get bigger or get the results in specific places of the body that you want, unless, you know, there, I mean, you need, you need the right materials there in terms of your genetic background. Right. Right. So, uh, uh, so some guys, uh, you give them, uh, one amount of testosterone a week and they blow up, they become the incredible Hulk. And then some guys, they will need two amounts. Again, it's genetics. Um, and also it's how you eat and how you exercise. Um, so these are the things that determine how much lean mass you put on uh, when you are on testosterone. So, which is, you know, the, the main anabolic steroid in the world, it is testosterone, which is also the main uh, anabolic steroid that your testicles produce. So, um, so that's, so that's something that I wanted to highlight. I also wanted to highlight the fact that um, testosterone gets a bad rap because of uh, things like heart attacks and strokes and pulmonary embolisms uh, and early death uh, among uh, young men. But, thi but this is not when testosterone is prescribed by a physician such as myself. This is when testosterone is obtained from the black market at very, very high quantities and being injected at very high quantities with no monitoring and, and without giving breaks to the body. So, uh, and, you know, and, and reducing the dose every once in a while. So this small group of people have given the entire profession and specialty a bad rap. And, um, and so I, I wanted to highlight that. You know, I find it shocking that, um, you know, I could want some results like that one day. I could totally see myself. Of course. Oh, of you course. know, you know, I've spent my life kind of lean um, as I get into my 40s a little bit more. You know, maybe I'd like some bigger biceps, some bigger muscles. And then, you know, do I have the time? I could I could see myself getting into emulate. Like maybe, maybe I can take a little bit under under very clear directions from a physician. I would never. So I I can't get into the mind space of people that are like, oh, I'm going to buy this from oh, oh, you would be, you would be and stick it in my arm. It's oh, like, the, the stuff that I hear and when Crazy. they come sit here and tell me what they do is mind-blowing. And, and and a part of me, a part of me, uh, a part of me respects th their ballsiness. Like yeah. I would, like <laughs> at twenty five, you you you're telling me to inject something, 
Hell no. Hell no. But these are 25-year-old kids, and they're injecting all sorts of stuff, high quantities. And no matter how big they get, they want to get bigger. And of course, you know, most of those guys are not going to make it to 50. Um, and, and you can counsel them on that. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, you can order a, a cardiac ultrasound to kind of show them how their heart is uh, is, is having signs of early heart failure. You know, some of them that brings them back to Jesus, uh, you know, uh, th things like that. So that's um, so these are some of the things that I wanted to highlight about uh, testosterone re uh, replacement. So, yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That's good. What could be the fix there? I mean, get the message out, get the message out wide that, you know, you really shouldn't be. I mean, in this day and age, when you think about the black market for anything ingestible, that is crazy. People right. are dropping like flies because fentanyl has like infected everything. Um, right, right. I don't even right. know how people buy weed outside. Right. It's, and it's not just fentanyl and weed. If you go on YouTube, if you go on YouTube right now, and if you and if you put the word testosterone on YouTube, you will get a whole lot of videos by people who have no medical training, nothing, but they're influencers, and they're selling all sorts of like fat burners, supplements. And things like that and all that stuff gives you colon cancer all of it is bad for you and all of it has no efficacy no results and people are buying so back to what you're saying you know you asked a question you said well how do we okay how do we shed light on that how do we spread the message you know unfortunately james at this point it's very hard to do so because because of legalities the dea uh, and the medical profession you know, they're not progressive uh, in that way. For example, you could make an argument and say, for the sake of safety of American society and American men specifically, we should embrace the men who are doing anabolics and doing them recreationally. And instead of uh, condemning them, we should actually study them. We should do trials on them. We should actually learn from them. And we should improve things and see how we can deliver results without affecting safety. But it's hard to do so in the current legal environment. There I'll is give no you a perception. Right. I'll give you no. a perfect example. If you go to the medical literature and if you look at the recommended dosing of testosterone for the purpose of replacement, the recommended dosing is half ml every week. My starter dose is one ml every week. Sometimes I go up, sometimes I go down after that, but my starting dose is one ml. So now you ask, why are you starting at a dose higher than the one recommended by your medical textbook? I will tell you, because my clinical experience showed me that that's the dose that works on most men. And I trust the clinical experience more than the book. I hope because the book is written on paper the clinical experience is a man in front of me and their lab results in front of me. The other thing, the book is written for managed care and for reducing costs and for defensive medicine and to reduce liability. Yeah. The book is not written for what's good for the patient. Yeah, of course. And so, yeah. and so to answer a question, unfortunately, James, in the world of uh, hormone replacement, uh, we have we have a long way to go before we can have an honest conversation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it might start with the stigma. Um, it's just not it's just not like I said before, I, I could see myself doing it. 
but it's not a socially, like I wouldn't wear a t-shirt that says I did it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, right. It's so funny because what's his name? Uh, the Rock. The Rock. Yeah. Uh, didn't he recently um, go public and, and, and was saying that he doesn't do any anabolics? I know. I don't believe it, but. <laughs> of course. I, I mean, it, it's hilarious. It, again, it's somebody telling you the sky is red, you know. Yeah. Of course, The Rock does anabolics. Of course, he's he's done a fuck ton of them. He, I mean, he looks great. He's got. I don't know how you get. I don't know how you get. You, you look like that without it. But um, exactly, you can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I I remember working out in the gym when I was. You know, when you're a t you go through the teenage years in particular, you discover you discover muscles. You're like, whoa, I could I could actually. You know, you're like 16, right? Your first time you're bench pressing, um, and you get some decent results, but it's a lot of work, man. And I knew one thing for sure: you could spend a decade in that gym and you would not look like some of these dudes that are using drugs. We'll you never are, get there. And, and, and you are absolutely correct. Yeah. It just and doesn't work that way. Yeah. It does not. No, yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. Yes. No, you're absolutely correct. Um, so yeah, that, no, that's, that's great information. Um, yeah. I think more about that stigma. Someone's got to break it. I don't know. Usually it takes someone famous to break it. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and I think, and I think, I, I think people are beginning to know what's going on because the use of anabolics is so widespread now, you know, you see muscle guys everywhere. So it's becoming something that people are more used to seeing. And um, uh, people are no longer asking you if you're doing anything because they know you're going to, you're not going to say the truth. You're not going to be truthful about whether or not you're using them, but yeah. pretty much every single man you see at the gym who is jacked is on anabolic steroids. Okay. Sure. Beyond including a certain, the ones, including yeah. the ones who tell who tell you that they're not on them. They are on them. Okay. So really, yeah, really, it's like if you have definition only, then you're, you know, you're probably natural. But once you right. go, like, it goes really, yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. You're seeing muscles that you didn't know existed, like muscles on top of muscles. <laughs> right, right. Here, here, here's how, here's, here's my motto. If you have to ask, that's your answer. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, so, right, right, right. And I wouldn't ask because it's a rude question. I would never ask. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It drives me crazy when, when some people you know, approach someone at the gym and say, this guy's not going to tell you. You know, nobody wants to shrink their work, their perception of the work they did for whatever results they have. No one right. wants to say, oh, I took this incredible shortcut. That's how I got here. You know? Right, 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 right. No one wants to say that. Right, right. They, those guys work out, work out their asses off. And they and they and they are very disciplined in how they eat. So so uh, so people say, oh, you're cheating when you're doing a box steroids. Actually, not true, because even when I start men at my clinic, when I start them on testosterone, not only does it give the uh, biochemical and physiologic improvements that it does, but testosterone makes them alter their lifestyle. Now they're actually working out more. Now they're watching what they eat more. So, so it has all these amazing effects um, on men because sometimes when you, when you kind of give someone an encouragement or a little boost, then they themselves um, take accountability and they feel empowered and they change their lifestyle. It's kind of like when you pay for a personal trainer, you kind of force yourself to go to the yes. gym. You'll show yes. up to the gym. And then if you don't pay for a personal trainer, you'll skip the days. So same thing with testosterone. When they inject, they're like, fuck, I gotta, I gotta go to the gym and I gotta cook some steak. So now their lifestyle is coming along the medication as well. So, and the other thing is about testosterone, which is really, really ironic. Uh, I have been labeled 
uh, on Twitter uh, and other social media outlets, I've been labeled as a snake oil seller because I prescribe testosterone. The irony is that if you want to look at a medicine that is prescribed in the field of medicine that is the most safe and organic, it would be testosterone because it's a bioidentical molecule to what your testicle is producing. Mm -hmm. And it is dissolved in cottonseed or grapeseed oil, which is organic. That is way safer than statin and other generic meds that are full of carcinogens. Every few weeks, there's a report of a pharmaceutical company withdrawing or recalling a drug because they're, they've discovered carcinogens in it. Yeah. What's the fucking carcinogen in testosterone? Not even prostate cancer. So the, so, so the testosterone is very misunderstood and it's unfortunate because then it, it makes some people label me as, um, uh, as not a real doctor, snake oil seller. In fact, if anything, real primary care is preventive and real prevention is hormone replacement for aging men and women. So I'm the primary care doctor. It goes, it goes back to vitality, which is, yes. um, which yes. is what are we doing here? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's that, it's that different view of healthcare where it's like, it's not on off health you know, I really want to get back to my 20s or I want to slow down whatever's happening. I don't want to ratchet down. Um, right, right. Yeah. And then another another issue uh, I think is misleading, uh, the whole anti-aging thing, okay? So um, uh, the, the word anti-aging is, is used in so many different ways in this country. P lay people, when they think of anti-aging uh, or the aging process, they're thinking physical, uh, physical appearance. When we doctors think of aging, we think of cancer, dementia, heart disease, and osteoarthritis. This is how we look at aging. If you have one of these four, you're aging. That's how we look at you. We don't care about your wrinkles and anything. That doesn't matter. What matters is biological aging, which is cancer, dementia, heart disease, and osteoarthritis. So, so is testosterone replacement anti-aging? Is it, is it anti-aging? Well, if a man, if a man has low energy, okay, and you give them testosterone, and now they're physically active, then for sure testosterone is anti-aging. Because you don't have to take my word for it, you can double check me. But every single disease under the sun is related also to physical inactivity, sedentary lifestyle. You can go double check, you don't even have to mark my no, words. Even, even, dementia, even dementia, even dementia is related, related to physical inactivity. So if testosterone gives you that physical activity, then for sure, it is anti-aging. Now, there are men who are already physically active, okay? And who are already eating good. And you give them testosterone, it's not gonna be anti-aging for them. They're already, they are already doing the things that are anti-aging. But what testosterone does for these men is that it's neither anti-aging nor pro-aging. It just improves the quality of life. It makes them look better feel yeah. better. It makes the sex better. It makes the boner better. And at the end of the day, look, man, you can drive a Bentley. You can, you can look, you can live in the French Riviera. None of that matters. At the end of the day, man's primal drive is food, sex, and sleep. These are, these are the three things that we all love. The Bentley's not going to fix any of that. Okay. Uh, 
So, so at the end of the day, quality of life matters. And it's a shame people are not looking at that. People are always saying, oh, hopefully you live till 100. Hopefully you live till whatever. I'm like, it's not about the quantity of life. It's about the quality of it. What's the point of living till 100 if the last 20 years of that 100, you're in a fucking nursing home, nobody talks to you and you know, you're alone? Uh, yeah. What's the fucking point of that? So, uh, so most of the men who come here for testosterone, they're not looking to age less or more. What they're looking for is an improvement in quality of life. No, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. I've, I've been thinking more about that um, as the years go by. I'm not, I'm not particularly interested. When you really sit down and think about it, who really wants to live to 100? Because you got you to gotta remind yourself, what does 80 to 100 look like? Right. Look at I, that. I don't want it. It's terrible. It's terrible. I would, I would certainly like drop off at 65. If the years between now and 65 are fantastic, I would be like, I think that's, I think that's a better. Right. 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 Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you, man. I'm right there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, people are trying. I think there's a, there's things are changing. Things are changing. I'm hearing a lot about, um, uh, psychedelics, people are getting into things and the, the stigma is being reduced. Things are being explored. It's a different time. We might, you might see a lot of change there in the next 10 years. Who knows in terms of public. Oh, 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 you for sure. You will see it in less than 10 years. You will see it in less than 10 years, but, 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 I, but, but psychedelics are hugely exaggerated and, um, uh, they are wonderful. Uh, I'm a tripster. I will admit to that. I'm, I'm a seasoned, okay. you know, hardcore tripster. I'll admit it. Uh, but it is, incorrect to think that psychedelics cure mental illness so they are peddling that and i and and i'm and i'm so afraid of this because because then it's going to be another prozac problem something that got blown out of proportion and then turns out it's a bust so and as somebody who loves psychedelics i don't want them to get a bad rap again we've already had the nixon administration fuck them up we don't want another problem with them. So psychedelics are wonderful, wonderful, safe, amazing drugs. But if you have depression or anxiety or PTSD, the psychedelic can help you temporarily maybe, but it's not going to solve the problem. So, um, so that's, you know, I think they should be a lot for other reasons. Again, quality of life, quality of life, you know, um, psychedelics do improve the quality of life. And that alone is a factor that should let the government take their hands off of psychedelics. And they're very safe too. And they cannot be, and you cannot be addicted to them because, you know, you can't do LSD. If you do, if you do LSD two days in a row, it's not going to be effective anyways. You can't. So there's no, you can't be addicted to it. Same thing with mushrooms. Okay. If you do a high dose of mushrooms, you can do it on two days in a row. The third day, you're not going to get anything. So, so you can't really, you can't really be addicted to these substances. But again, let's let's hold our horses because once again they said the same thing about ketamine, okay? And then and, and then and then look at that. Uh, that train came so fast and went so fast and, and 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 turned out to be a huge bust. So so I'm afraid that the psychedelic movement is the same thing. Um, I think I think there's tremendous value to them, but um, but they shouldn't be considered the cure. So for okay. mental. So, yeah. So for value, you're thinking like, it's, it's fun. That's the, oh, <laughs> oh my God. like, that's its value. It's fun. The happiest, yeah. the happiest moments of my life are on psychedelics, hands down, hands down. The most beautiful things my eyes have seen have been on a psychedelic. And that alone is a reason 
to allow them. Let people see the beauty in life. Um, so that's, you know, watch a sunset on mushrooms or LSD. It'll change your entire life. It'll make you want to live, you know, till 100 to witness that again. You're like, oh, my God, this beautiful flower that is becoming ballerinas in front of my eyes is just incredible. So um, so, so, for, so from that regards, yes. But uh, but are they going to solve your bad marital relationship? No. Are they going to yeah. solve your bad boss and your underpaid job? No. Yeah. And these are the sources of depression. And these are the sources of our mental health issues, right? Bad yeah. jobs and bad relationships and disconnectedness with nature and uh, disconnectedness with family. These are the sources of uh, mental health issues in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I think, you know, for, for the vast majority of people, you just look back, see what our ancestors did. You know, if you have people around you who love you, you have some family, you love, yeah. people love you and you're getting some nature, things should be pretty good. It should yeah. be pretty good. We've got a lot of other complications, you know, but right. that, that should be enough to subsist on for quite some time. That's my right. right. No, that's interesting stuff. Um, you know, we're really far away. I don't trip. <laughs> we're far away in lifestyle, but but I like your position and your opinions on things. It's very interesting. Um, so I'm gonna ask one last question before before we I think we're 737. One one last question. Would you would you accept Bitcoin? as payment for your practice and services? Do you ever see that happening? Is it, you either would say like, hell yeah, hell no, or what is that? Hell no. Hell no. Hell no. <laughs> really? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 my, uh, my answer to that is that even though Bitcoin still has value, it's still out there, um, I do think that after so many years, so many years, Cryptocurrency is still difficult to understand and uh, difficult to decipher. And uh, the whole thing appears very sketchy to me. Uh, it really does look like, a, what do you call it? A pyramid. Um, Ponzi. Ponzi. A, big pon a, big, a big Ponzi scheme. By the way, I lost a lot of money in crypto. Um, I, um, I hopped on a couple of them and uh, totally lost, lost all of, all of my money. Um, uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin, though, and Ether, are fine, but I don't think we'll get to a point when these are truly going to be used. Um, they, they might be a good store of value, mm -hmm. but they're not easy to exchange uh, in between businesses and everything. And um, and so I don't see them being practical at all. I hear you there. I I mean, that's certainly those are real concerns. Real concerns on that. I um I've I've looked extensively into Bitcoin in particular. I lost money too. I lost money in the crypto market. Um, so I actually, what happened is I started hating the US dollar. I think I started hating the US dollar and I started saving in Bitcoin. And you can check back with me in a few years, but you'll know if if I <laughs> it was a bad mistake or not. And it might be, it might be. Um, but we'll see how it goes. So you're a hard no on taking Bitcoin payments. Absolutely. I like to ask physicians on that and see. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that, that, that's, a, that's a hard no. Um, it's been great. It's been great talking to you. Um, yeah, James, uh, you, you have very good questions. And uh, um, we need more people like you to be uh, invested in the health system, because it's not just you, it's your children and your grandchildren. Um, so this the, the, the issue of healthcare in the US is an issue of national security. When the health of the citizenry goes down, the citizenry is no longer able to be uh, competitive 
in its productivity on a global economic scale. So the health system of a country is a matter of national security. So I do think that lay people from all walks of life should be concerned and they should ask questions and they should learn how the system works because us doctors, we cannot do anything about it. So we need actually the American people to act. That is a beautiful way to end this. Thank you so much, Dr. Abdullah. You're, you're more than welcome. It's been my pleasure.